0: We are going to be covering the final verses in 1 John this morning, but we're not wrapping up this series. Uh, Pastor Steve, next weekend, um, he is going to wrap up 1 John, uh, but we're in 1 John 5, 18-21. We're going to be finishing out um, the letter here today, so follow along with me as I read. We know, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So it's completely fitting in a letter that's all about Christian assurance. It's all about Christian affirmation that John would end with three final assurances. Three final affirmations. Verse 18, 19, and 20 all begin with, we know. We know. And as much in this series here in 1 John, that John has led us to examine ourselves, to look at ourselves, to ask tough questions about ourselves, to look inward, he ends his letter not with an exhortation for us to look inward, but an exhortation for us to look upward and to look at God. And to be assured by Him, to be assured in Christ, in His work, not in our work. Robert Murray McShane, old Scottish pastor, died in 1843. He said this, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And John is showing us and doing that for us this morning. But that's not what we do, is it? We take 20 looks at ourselves and we get all bogged down with what's going on in our lives and in our hearts and in our world and we barely take a look at Christ throughout the week. Is anybody with me on that? Am I the only one who sins in that way? Am I the only one with gospel amnesia here in this room? Am I the only one who has a hard time looking at Christ and I get overwhelmed by me and my sin and my life and what's going on around me? John is telling us we need to look to the sun. We need to look to God for assurance for every look at yourself. Take 10 looks at Christ. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I have four. We knows. I have four. We knows from this passage. And as we'll see, we know because of Jesus. So my first point is this. We know that our relationship to sin has changed because of Jesus. We know that our relationship to sin has changed because of Jesus. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now this isn't anything new that John is sharing with us here. He's already shared this with us. We've already covered this idea of the believer's relationship to sin. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 6, he said this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. We see that same language there. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John's bringing this up again, as is fitting as well for this letter, right? John's always revisiting things over and over again. He's not so much like Paul, methodical, kind of building an argument. He's more of a kind of like uh, all over the place, kind of like an artist, right? As he thinks about something, I think kind of maybe John had ADD, you know, like, I don't know, like that brings me comfort as a pastor. I have ADD. Right. And so he'll say a thought and he'll get his mind going, thinking this way. John's kind of like all over the place. And he's always what what the the cause of that. Right. Is that he keeps reintroducing things, keeps bringing things up. And so we see this again, this idea of our relationship to sin. We don't keep on sinning for those who are born of God and abide in him. For the Christian, sin is no longer a way of life. It's no longer a practice an unhindered practice. It's no longer an unbroken pattern. It's no longer a lifestyle for the one who's been born again. Sin no longer dominates us. That's the teaching there. Now John is not meaning to say we become sinless. This whole final thought here for John on our relationship to sin is on the heels of verses 16 and 17 where he's just encouraged the church to pray for the sinning brother. You remember that in 16? Pray for the one who's sinning pray for him that god may give him life and so it doesn't make sense that john would be teaching that christians are sinless because this comes on the heels of john encouraging the church to pray for a brother who's in sin and it also would be an entire contradiction of chapter one where he encourages us to confess our sin to confess our sin that we may receive forgiveness of sins so john's not teaching that we're sinless a mantra that's been thrown around throughout the years is Christians aren't sinless, but they sin less. It's okay. It's kind of one of those like cliche things. You guys know how much I like Christian cliches. And so if that helps you kind of grab on to that a little bit, I think that's good. But what John's saying is that our relationship to our sin and our relationship to this world has changed forever. Forever. Christians won't sin in the same way they used to before their conversion. Our relationship to sin has changed. Why? Two things. The first is this. New life in Christ. New life in Christ. Notice in verse 18 that it is everyone who has been born of God who doesn't keep on sinning. They cannot continue to habitually sin. Born of God. That phrase, we've looked at it, but let's, re, let, let's look at it again. It refers to the very life of God that's been breathed into our dead souls, our stone-cold hearts. It's the very breath and life of God breathed into us. The recreative act of God where He imparts, where He gives to us spiritual life. Theologically, this is called regeneration. Titus 3.5 God breathes the life of God into our dead souls. And just a quick glance, the scope of Scripture. He has given us a new heart, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. He's made us alive, Ephesians 2. We are new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5. We have been born again or born from above, John 3. We have been regenerated, Titus 3. We have been raised to newness of life, Romans 6. Regeneration is the basis of all change in heart and life. We can't produce a single piece of fruit if it were not for the gracious, sovereign, recreative act of God in the life, in the heart to regenerate us and make us alive. In regeneration, God has overhauled the interior man. He's overhauled us. He's created life. And because of that, we will never be or act the same ever again. And this is exactly the argument that Paul makes in Romans 6.1. As it relates to our being made alive and our relationship to sin. Look at what he says. Romans 6, 1-4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Are we to keep on sinning? That grace may abound? By no means. No. Strong no. Emphatic no. Look at what he says. How can we who died to sin? That phrase there. That's something that happened to you. God did that. That's not something you did. That's something God did. And it is definitive. We who died, that happened. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus were baptized or immersed into His death? We were buried. You see that? We were buried. Something happened to you. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism in the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see here? This is an act of God. Something has happened. God has done something to us. It is this being born of God. It is this being made alive. This is a work that God has done by way of Christ. And it's our faith. Our faith, our trust, our embrace of Christ that connects us to the work of Christ. Christ did something. He lived, he died, he rose again. And that is effectual in the lives of those who embrace him by faith. And when we embrace him, we come into a relationship. We come into a union where all the benefits and all the work of Christ is applied to the believing sinner. This is exactly what John means in verse 20 when he says this, and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus. You see that little word there in we're in, we're in a relationship. We're in a union. We're in a covenantal relationship where all the benefits of the work of Christ are applied to us. We are in union with Jesus. Just as Christ died, we died. Just as Christ was raised, we were raised to newness of life, eternal life. That's exactly what John means here. Eternal life. Remember, he mentions this. He even mentions it here. He says that Jesus is the true eternal life. And we've talked about this eternal life. The concept is of of eternal life. The old concept is that eternal life just has to do with a quantity of life, a quantity of days, right? Or eternal life. That means I live forever. That means there's no end to my days. There's no end to my life. No, but John is showing us that it's not just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. Not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life. New life in Christ. Where our relationship to sin has changed. Now John wants us to know this. Know it. Lock it down. Know that you're new. Know that the old you was dead in sin. And know that when you didn't love God, you were dead. And know that that person died. That person is dead. And there's no going back. So here's how this works. When we leave this place. And we fall into sin this week. And we fall into idolatry. And we shift the worth and the value and the glory that ought to be toward the Son. We shift that and we place that worth and glory on something created. And that becomes our joy. And that becomes our life. And that becomes our worth and our identity. And we commit idolatry. Or we transgress against the law. And we act in a way that Jesus isn't amazing. Or something created is. Here's what you say. That's not me anymore. That person's dead. And I'm acting like I'm not alive. That's not me. That person's gone. I remember I was having a conversation with an old friend shortly after I became a Christian. Baker Square. Right? we was sitting across from each other. And this is a guy that saw the, the old me. The me that wouldn't be up here preaching a sermon okay, before I became a Christian. And he said, I want the old Tony back. I go, that dude died. That dude's dead. And that's exactly what John's saying. Yeah, Absolutely. And that's true of you. And that's true of all who are born of God. And John wants you to know that. Because you can confidently say that to your friend. If you get the opportunity. The second reason we know that our relationship to sin in this world has changed. Is because of God's possession and protection of us. His possession and protection in our lives. My next point is this. We know that we belong to God and are protected by Jesus. We know that we belong to God and are protected by Jesus. By Jesus. We belong to God. We are His possession. We are protected by God. Possession and protection, they go hand in hand. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God. We know. Here's the second we know. We know we're from God. The NIV translates this verse, we know that we are children of God. John, one last time, is assuring us of the security we have in Christ as God's children. John has already assured us of this over and over again in this letter. He uses that title children of 14 times in this letter. He refers to them as children, which is a term of endearment. It's also a term of position. You are children. You are gods. We are children of God. Remember 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John's doing that again here. In 1 John 5. As Christians, we belong to God. He owns us. Now this refers to the doctrine or the teaching of redemption. We are His possession. Because of our sin, we have racked up an insane amount of moral debt. And no amount of Financial Peace University classes can get you out of that. Dave Ramsey cannot get you out of this kind of debt. Okay? Okay? We have racked up an insane amount of moral debt because of our sin. And what we see is that God in His grace sent Christ. Christ died to purchase us from the pit of sin and despair. He bought us out of our hopeless condition as sin slaves, a work that we could not do on our own. Jesus paid the price for our sin, for our moral debt, in full to make us His possession. And by God's grace, through Christ, he has brought us into a covenant relationship where he has called us children. Exactly what Stephen was encouraging us earlier today. We are friends. We are his possession. In fact, we are called a people for his own possession in 1 Peter 2. We are a people for his own possession. He owns us. Now, God's possession of us is only a comfort and it's only a security if we know that he loves us. Okay, because just because you possess something or own something doesn't mean you care for it. It doesn't mean you love it. It doesn't mean you protect it. And I'm sure all of you can go home and go up into your attic and find something that you own but can care less about. Okay, so just because somebody somebody owns something doesn't mean they love it and care for it and protect it. But it's true that when you possess something, you love it. You want to protect it. You want to look after it. You want to care for it. A great example of this is my five-year-old and his Legos. Does anybody have a five-year-old who loves Legos? Yes, I see moms nodding their head. My five-year-old, Britton, his new thing is this gold Lego ninja. He brings that thing with him everywhere. At all times, he's got it in his pocket. He protects that thing from his sister, who's always trying to ruin his life. He protects it from his older brother, from neighborhood kids. He protects that thing. He keeps that thing. I walked into his uh, uh, room this morning. He was wearing a, a, a suit last night. I have no idea why, just because. And he put his suit pants down. I said, what are you doing, bro? You're not wearing that suit to church. He goes, I'm trying to find my gold ninja Lego. First thing in the morning, where's my gold ninja Lego? Right? He owns it. He loves it. He wants to protect it. And so it is with God, friends. We are God's children. We are his possession. He loves us with a faithful covenant-keeping love that Psalm 103 describes as a love that is from everlasting to everlasting. A love that is from everlasting to everlasting. When did it begin? I have no idea. It didn't begin. It's from everlasting. When will it end? It won't. It's to everlasting. And because he loves us so, he protects us. Look at the second half of verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now this verse is a little tricky, but not really. In the first part, John mentions everyone who has been born of God, but now John mentions he singular who was born of God. And what John's referring to here is the incarnation, the one who has come from God. John is referring to God the Son who became incarnate. He was begotten or he became flesh. God took on a human nature. The eternal Son came to this earth, born born from a virgin, and became a man. This is what John is referring to here with this language. And John is saying that this begotten Son, this Son protects or keeps believers so that the evil one may not touch them. This truth is illustrated well in the story of Peter. You remember when Peter denied Christ three times, when he failed, when he fell, we see this from Luke 22, 31 to 34, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan wanted to shake Peter violently. That's what's meant by shake you like a a grain of wheat. Shake it, shift it violently so that the wheat falls to the ground. Satan wanted to shift and shake Peter so that he might fall like a grain of wheat. And what we know from the Gospels is that Peter did fall. He denied Jesus three times. But we also know that Peter's denial and failure, it wasn't final. His failure and his denial was not final. We see Jesus saying here in Luke 22, And when you have turned again, Jesus knows. And when you have turned again, and when you come back, strengthen your brothers. The primary reason that Peter's denial and failure did not lead to an ultimate failure and falling away is because Jesus prayed for Peter, that his faith would not fail. And so it didn't. It didn't fail. Jesus protected and kept Peter. The primary reason that our failures, our denials our sins, our wanderings are not final and ultimate is not because we are so strong in our faith to pick ourselves back up. It's not that we're so strong and have the wherewithal to come back on our own, but that we have a strong Savior who protects us and keeps us in the faith. We have, amen, Romaine and Dick. (laughs) Praise the Lord. It's not so much that we are strong, but He is strong. And just like Jesus prayed for and protected Peter, Jesus prays for and protects all of his children. Look at Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is able. He is able. He is willing and able and strong to save to the uttermost. Meaning this, save to the end. Save to the finish line. Save throughout all eternity. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for us. And just like Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith may not fail. So the son is at the right hand of the father praying for and interceding and protecting and keeping us. John wants you to be encouraged by that this morning. He wants you to know that. Know that. In John 6.39 Jesus says that all the children that God has given to him he loses none. He loses none. Here's what I know. I would have punted. On Christianity a long time ago, and and in all the years that I've I've lived, and I've wandered, and I've sinned, and I've blasphemed, and I've strayed, and I've forgotten Christ. If it wasn't for Him and His protecting and keeping power, those would have been the final word of my life. But God is relentless in our lives, isn't He? He's relentless, and you know this if you've ever had a season of falling away or strain. God is always bringing you back. He's always drawing you back. He's always protecting you and keeping you. Your sin is not final. Your failure is not final. Your wanderings are not final. And there might be somebody in here today who's coming to church just because it's habit. It's habit. But your heart's far away from God. Your heart's far, but you're a child of His. And you're running. It's not going to be before too long. And in His love, He draws you back. Because He protects us and He keeps us. Next point, we know that we know the true God because of Jesus. We know that we know the true God because of Jesus. You know, sometimes it can be hard to weave through all the talk and all the chatter in our world about who God is. A lot of theologies out there. A lot of worldviews out there. A lot of thoughts and comments and opinions about who God is. There are many beliefs about God, about who God is in this world, in Lake County, in Cedar Lake. God doesn't exist. That's a belief about God. That's a viewpoint about God. That's a theology, so to speak. There's also many ways that that people in the world answer the major questions in life. Who are we? Who are we? Where did we come from? What's our origins? What's our beginnings? Where are we going? What's the whole point of this thing? What's the whole point of life? These big kind of worldview questions. There's a lot of people that answer those questions in different ways. Many religions, many worldviews that answer the major life questions very differently. And they all believe that their answer is the truth. They all believe that theirs is the way. We also know that there are many who have abandoned the idea that there even is such a thing as truth. Or that truth can be discovered. Some have abandoned truth with a capital T for lowercase t truths, right? That's true for you, but it's not true for me. You have your lowercase truth that works for you. There's no capital T truth. There's no truth that overarchingly explains everything. You might have something that works for you. That's great. Many in our day have resorted even to cynicism and skepticism. Which is when you're constantly in a state of hard hearted doubting and your weariness of people who claim to have the answers. Many people, many young people in their 20s, in their early 30s, are resorting to this kind of approach to life and to God and to religion and to worldview. Cynicism, doubting, skepticism, agnosticism. How can you know? You can't know. Who are you? Who are you to say you know the truth? This guy here over here says something different and it contradicts what you're saying. How do I know? How do we know? And even more, there are some who take a personally customized approach to God and religion. Do you guys remember Sarah Michelle Geller? She's most famously played uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Do you guys remember this? Any Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans in here? One in the front row. Yes. We have a, we have a winner. We have a winner. Listen to what she said in 2002. I consider myself a spiritual person. I believe in an idea of God, although it's my own personal ideal. I find most religions interesting, and I've been to every kind of denomination, Catholic, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist. I've taken bits from everything and customized it. There are a lot of people in our world that do this. In a world with competing, contradictory, and customized belief systems, cynics and skeptics, how do we know, church, what the truth is? Can we know what the truth is about God, about salvation, about what to believe, about how to live, about what to live for? John in 1 John 5 is telling us, yes, yes, we can know. And not we can know, we know the truth. And the reason we can know the truth is because, not because we've discovered it, not because we're smart in and of ourselves, not because we've done the math and have figured this thing out. No, it's because it's been revealed to us revealed to us the truth about who God is and how he saves was revealed to us in a very unique way in history. And that unique historical way is when God, the son came down and lived and died and rose again. Look at what John says. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. The son has come Christ has come and revealed to us who God is. John said it this way in his gospel. No one has ever seen God. No one's ever seen the Father, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Who's that? Who's the only God who's at the Father's side? That's the Son. He has made Him known. John 1 is all about the Son becoming flesh. John 1 is all about the eternal Son of God, being the only God. And John is saying that no one's ever seen God. The only God, the Son, who is God, who's at the Father's side. He has left the side of the Father and become flesh for the very specific purpose to come and reveal to us who God is and to come and rescue us and save us and bring us into a relationship with this true God. Jesus has come to explain. Jesus is like a big. God for dummies manual, all right? And where are the dummies, trust me. Bible, that's like baby speak for God. He's, con- he's condescending, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying that we can't handle the fullness of who God is. But God has revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand. And what's the best way to reveal yourself to men? To become a man, and to come, and to live and die and rise from men. God became a man to reveal Himself. Jesus is God wrapped in flesh. And all that He is, and all that He taught, and all that He did revealed all that there is to be known about God. The word that John uses here for truth defines truth as that which is genuine and authentic as opposed to that which is false. He uses truth to describe it in a way that contrasts it from genuine to fake. He is the true God. The ultimate reality as opposed to that which is merely a shadow. And John is delivering the final blow to that group of false teachers that caused so much havoc and so much division in the church with their supposed knowledge. He's delivering the final blow to them. They made such a big deal. About their knowledge of God, their supposed knowledge, and their false views of Jesus. And John is telling them and everyone else that whatever supposed knowledge you think you have about God or this world, if Jesus isn't at the center of it, it's no knowledge at all. It's no knowledge at all. As James Boyce says, only through the real Son of God is the real God known. Only through the real Son of God is the real God known. And so we ask people in a conversation about God, we don't assume that just because they say God or even Jesus, well, who is Jesus to you? Who, who, who do you believe Jesus is? If it's not the eternal Son of God incarnate, come down to live, die, rise, and save us by grace through faith in His work, then it's not the real God. And they're not genuine. But John's not just arguing here. He's comforting. Remember? We know He's comforting us. And the comforting truth that John is sharing with us is that we know God. We know Him. The most important thing to get right and the most consequential thing to get wrong has to do with God. And John is telling us that because of Jesus, we know. Is that a comfort to you this morning? Is it a comfort to you that you know the true God because of the true Son? I think it was A.W. Tozer. He said the most important The most important question in your life. Or no, he said this. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. That is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. And God has not left us to guess. God has not left us to figure it out on his own. No, he's come and revealed it to us. Every other religion in the world speculates as to who God is. And every other person in the world speculates as to who God is. Speculation. And friends, if it wasn't for Christ, we'd be speculating too. We'd be of those who are speculating. But it's not speculation. It's revelation. The Son is revelation. The word is revelation. Everything else is speculation. We know the truth about God, which is a comfort to us, and it's a confidence to us. But it ought never to lead to arrogance, friends. It ought never to lead to arrogance. Why? Because we were smart and figured it out? Is that what John says? No. What does it say? The Son's come to give us understanding. The Son. It's His work. We are those who live in the comfort and the assurance of that, that we know and we're in a relationship with God. But there's no arrogance here. There's no arrogance. It's a betrayal to the very nature and how God's revealed Himself to us when we become arrogant, when we argue with with, with hardness in our hearts. And so when we get into these conversations, don't look down on someone because they don't know who God is. We ought never to have that posture towards another. We should have a posture of love. We should have a posture of humility when we talk because we are the ones who have been revealed to. It's only because of the revelation from the son that we know the truth. We weren't the ones smart enough. We weren't the ones who discovered the truth on our own. There ought to be no pride here. We know the truth about the true God because of Jesus. And not just know about God. I think this is important for us to make this distinction when it comes to this word know. This word know here has depth. It has depth. And it goes beyond just knowledge. And it speaks to a relationship. We're not ones who just know about God, but we know God in relationship. Well, listen to what Jackman said about this verse. It is not only that Christ has revealed the Father by His incarnation, perfect life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection, but that through all of this, He has brought us into the closest possible union with the one true God. By faith, we enter into a relationship that will never end. Again, I'll go back to John's language in 19. We are in Him who is true. We are in His Son. We have been brought into a relationship. Let me ask you a question. Do you know about God? Or do you know God? A lot of us in here could pass a test. If we gave you like a basic theology one-on-one test. Ten questions. True or false. I'm sure a lot of us in here would do really, really well. We know about God. But do we know Him? Do we walk with Him? Do we abide in Him? Do we communicate and talk to him? Do, are his words important to us? Is what he says important to us? Do we struggle to get into the word? Yes, but it's a desire of ours. We want to hear from him. We want to know him and abide in him. Do you know some facts about God? Or do you have a relationship with God? And maybe today, friend, maybe today, maybe today you'll go from the, from the person that knew about God or knows about God or who can ace a test to coming into and entering a vivacious, lively relationship with the Son, where you walk with Him and abide in Him and pray to Him and are comforted and protected by Him. Maybe today will be that day. We know God. We know the true God because of the true Son. And we're also in a relationship with this true God. Last point. Because God the Son has come in flesh, To reveal the truth about the genuine God and the truth about how to be reconciled to him, John wraps his letter up with these final words. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Last point, we know idols because of Jesus. We can discern idols in our hearts and in our culture because of Jesus. Now, I couldn't help but laugh that God would bring us to this verse on the weekend that the NFL kicks off. I'm just going to throw that out there. Just put it there. Not a soapbox thing because I need to hear that too. Okay? So there's that. We'll let that sit. To play off of John's use of true in verse 20, where he uses true in contrast to that which is fake, authentic and genuine to that which is phony, John now says that we can know the fake and unauthentic gods of this world because of Jesus. John says that Jesus is the true God and eternal life. He is the true, authentic, real deal God in a world of false, fake, phony, pseudo saviors. This is Jesus. He's the real deal. And that's good that we know. It's good that we know. It's good that we know who Jesus is. It's good that he has revealed himself to us, that he has shown us who he is. That He has endeared our hearts and our affections and our life to Him through His work, through His revelation. It's good that we know that because counterfeit gods are rampant in our world. They are rampant in our culture. There are many things in our culture and in our lives that are competing for our love. They're competing for our attention. They're competing for our money. They're competing for our time. They're competing for our trust. They're competing for our hope. Please know that sin is far more than just breaking a law. It's when your heart longs to attach itself and ascribe glory and worth and value to something that is created rather than the creator. Sin runs deep and sin is more comprehensive than I just broke a law. I just broke a rule. It has to do with the heart, friends. Not just the behavior, but the heart. And John is saying, keep yourself from idols. We bow down to different idols in our day. Instead of golden calves. Instead of statues. And while some say that verse 21 is a throwaway verse. And it's a disconnected thought for John. I see it as the common sense outcome of the one who's experienced verse 20. It's the common sense outcome of the one who's experienced verse 20. Our eyes have been open to the truth about the true God because the real Jesus has come to reveal it to us. And in that very moment, when that happens, when we become alive to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, and we embrace that by faith, everything that is false gets exposed. Everything that's false. When we look to Christ and we see him for who he is, everything else, Gets exposed. All the things that we've been living for and loving all get exposed as idols and vain pursuits. And everybody who's in this room who's had that verse 20 experience where God the Son has come to reveal and make himself known. And he's made you alive and he's granted you faith and repentance to trust in the Son. You know what that's like. Because you are living and loving and pursuing lesser things. And Jesus came to show you who he is. And you trash those things. And you turn from those things to pursue Christ. Everything else false gets exposed. Everything else is shown as vain pursuits once we've come to know Christ. And the question is this, how could we ever go back? How could we ever go back? And yet this is the story of our lives as sinners, isn't it? That we do go back. We do go back. We begin to forget the truth. We we begin to once again buy into the old lies. The old lies of our old lives. That old man, that guy that died. We have gospel amnesia, Jesus amnesia, right? And we begin to re- revert back and buy into those old lies, the cultural lies. We begin to forget how much better Jesus is. We forget the truth. And even though because of Jesus we can discern false gods, there are still plenty of them. And they are powerful. They are subtle. And they are culturally acceptable. And they are relentless they're relentless. And so John, after showing us how excellent and true Jesus is, he tells us that in this world, there's lots of false gods. There's lots of false pursuits. And there's lots of things that are vying for your love, attention, and affection. Know who Jesus is. He's the true God. He's the true eternal life and keep yourself from idols. Now we have two things going on here. God's keeping and protecting of us. And our keeping and protecting ourselves from idols. At the first part of the verse, John says No, the Son keeps us. He protects us. But now John in 21 is saying, you keep yourself. How do these two go together? God's protecting and keeping of us does not negate responsibility on our part. It doesn't negate it. It doesn't negate responsibility on our part to fight sin and to fight against idols in the Christian life. Rather, friends, his keeping power in our lives motivates it. It's the very drive. It's the very thing that keeps us fighting. His keeping power is the reason you're keeping yourselves from idols. His keeping power is the reason that you even have a desire to keep yourself from idols. The proof of his keeping power is in our fighting to keep ourselves from sin and idols. And those who don't belong to God, friends, don't have God's protection. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They're not protected by God. They are not born of God. He doesn't keep them. And they don't fight the good fight of resisting pseudo-saviors. They buy into the cultural lie. But we are ones who, by God's grace, He's made us alive. And He's revealed Himself to us. And He has saved us. And he's brought us into a relationship where we receive all the benefits of the work of Christ. And not only that, friends, but he keeps loving us. And he keeps protecting us. And he keeps us. Be encouraged that your sin and your failing and your idol worship is not final in your life. God is always chasing after you. Always pulling you back. Always pulling you back. Bringing you to this place. Reminding you of the beauty of the sun. Reminding you of the greatness of the sun. So that you can discern the pseudo gods in your life, the pseudo gods in this culture, and that we can repent of those things, and encourage one another to repent of those things, and we can turn back to Him once again. And His grace is unending; it's unending; it doesn't stop; it doesn't stop being our God; He doesn't stop stop protecting us. We know the truth about God because of Jesus. We are reconciled to God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are born again and made new to be new creatures by faith in Jesus. We know that sin no longer dominates our lives because of Jesus. We are protected and secure because of the love and the power of Jesus. We know that we are secure as children of God because of the redemption we have in Jesus. We are the ones who know. Let us go from this place. and Let that motivate us to talk to others who don't know. To encourage them. To love them. As those who have been loved and made known, let us also love those who were once in a state like us. And as God showed us grace, let us be people of grace to go and let them know as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this word of First John. Thank you for this letter. What an encouraging word, God. What a strengthening word today. We know. We know. This is who we are. And this is what you've done for us in our lives. And we can't help but thank you for that. We are those who live in gratitude in light of the work of Christ. God, help me and help my friends to keep fighting the good fight. To not stop. And God, we know that we won't stop because you don't stop. You don't stop protecting us. Thank you for your possession of us and protection in our lives. And it's in the name of the Son who is the true God in eternal life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.